This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, it's great to be back with you on Real Talk. Jesperson here with Hicks on this June 19th. Yeah. And uh, we've got a lot coming up this week. If you subscribe to our weekly email, you already know what the lineup's looking like. But uh, after a few days, uh, John and I recharging our batteries. We're going to be hitting yeah. the ground running. Uh, today's show, Francis Hagen, the Facebook whistleblower. Charles Adler is going to join us as well. Uh, tomorrow's show is going to be a, a great one. We're looking into, uh, you know, we've, we've got, uh, well, basically a couple of natural disaster stories that we can't ignore. One of them, obviously, the wildfires that are burning uh, in Canada, in Alberta, and also out in the Maritimes on the East Coast. We want to look into uh, the the future of what they're calling fire season, although I don't think the experts like calling it fire season, you know? Uh, but we're going to be talking to an author coming up on Tuesday's show. I want to put this on your radar. John Valen, he's got a book, Fire Weather. He's one of Canada's foremost experts on the subject. We're going to get to that, plus journalist Robin Doolittle joining us on Tuesday's show as well. We'll get into that Secret Canada series that she's rolling out with the Globe and Mail. There's a lot of ground to cover and of course as the week extends on we're also going to be commemorating and marking the 10-year anniversary i can't believe it's been a decade already on one hand it feels like last month that (laughs) southern alberta was underwater those floods of 2013 and and on another hand it feels like it was a lifetime ago Uh, we're going to be talking to some experts some researchers out of calgary on on what we learned from those floods at the time the costliest natural disaster in Canadian history, uh, damage totaling more than $5 billion. Uh, and of course, much of, of Calgary and surrounding communities who will forget High River and some of the disaster that we saw through central Alberta. Uh, five people dead, more than 100,000 people displaced. Uh, and that 10-year anniversary, as a matter of fact, the, the floods officially, once they started uh, being categorized as such and as an actual disaster, it was 10 years ago today. It was on June 19th of 2013. So that's something we'll be paying attention to this week. Uh, Francis Hagen in just a second, but we wanted to let you know that this episode of Real Talk is presented by We Know Training. We Know Training is your partner for training that matters. Let them take on your training needs so that you can focus on what you do best. They're your one-stop solution partner to streamline and monetize your training, empower your learners, and move the needle on your business goals. We Know Training provides a full suite of solutions from instructional design to online training technology, from bilingual customer support to advice on scaling and monetizing your course content. We Know Training is here to support you every single step of the way you can get the ball rolling. Figure out more about how they can help your business grow at weknowtraining.ca. Well, you may know her as the Facebook whistleblower. Francis Hagen is the former Facebook product manager who in 2021 leaked tens of thousands of internal documents detailing the potential negative impact of the platform now known as Meta on users. She recently joined McGill University Center for Media Technology and Democracy, where she's working to support research and public engagement on online safety, on youth digital rights, 
and on data transparency. She's the author of the bestseller, The Power of One, and she joins us live on this Monday. Francis, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. I've, I've been seeing your interviews. Everybody wants to talk to you right now. Thanks for making oh, time for us. This, this has obviously been just a, a wild ride for you going back about <laughs> going back about three years. When when did you start feeling those internal mm. red flags waving? When did you know mm. that this was a problem of great magnitude? You know, it's interesting. So I think there's two halves to that. So one is, um, you know, I've known for a long time that social media could have a real impact on people because back in uh, 2016, um, I was right in the, the the kind of tail end of I got so sick, I had to relearn to walk. So I had, I had nerve damage so bad, I was paralyzed beneath my knees. And, uh, and so I was, uh, I had an assistant who really, really mattered to me. Like this was a person who like saw me on my journey, uh, through getting better, you know, take me out walking when I was so weak that like, I really shouldn't have been walking by myself. And I watched him in 2016, you know, get sucked down a rabbit hole online. Um, because one, uh, he was a very strong Bernie Sanders supporter. And once, uh, Bernie lost the primary, uh, he turned, my, fr- my friend turned to kind of the darker places on the internet to commiserate with people. And, and I watched what, you know, um, uh, you know, how, how the rabbit hole works in terms of taking a smart, well-read, uh, empathetic person and, and making him, you know, be afraid of, of, of ghosts around every corner. Right. Um, but when I joined Facebook, the moment where I was like, wow, like, something seems wrong here, um, really unfolded over even the first month or so. Um, because like, I, I watched what level of chaos was going on inside the company. You know, I, I got pulled out of uh, new hire orientation, because my manager was like, we need a plan for dealing with misinformation that isn't caught by third party fact checkers. So like most people think misinformation, Facebook, they think these people who decide what stories are good and bad, you know, we need someone who can deal with the fact that Third-party fact-checking doesn't exist in most of the world. Most of the world, you know, for most languages, there's no safety protections. How can we think about the design of the product, the algorithms, and how how those things should be impacted? So imagine I've just shown up at the company. I've been there maybe a week, and my manager's like, "You need to come up with a plan for what you're going to do for the next six months." Um, I know nothing about the company. My entire team is new. Um, and, and that was not standard. You know, I had worked in Silicon Valley for 15 years already. Like that's, that's not how you solve problems in an effective way. Or less than a month later, you know, the mentor that I was assigned as a new hire told me I shouldn't work on this project at all. He said, this is, this is a, this is a bad project. And I was like, but you know, the reason I got assigned to it is we know that, you know, just a few months earlier in Sri Lanka, um, there had been a bombing. Uh, and misinformation flared up right around that that conflict, and because the event was a crisis, journalists couldn't keep up with it. I was I would sit there and try to explain to him, you know, about these issues, and he'd be like, "You can't measure it. It's not worth doing. Like you're you're never you're never going to be viewed as successful at this project." Um, and so that was kind of like even in the very early days, something felt really really wrong. And you'd been at like your, your career uh, to that point, um, mm-hmm. obviously, like, let's be honest, you're hitting it out of the park. You're at this point, you're in like your early to mid thirties. You've already worked at Google. Mm-hmm. You've worked at Yelp. You've worked at Pinterest. Like you, you, you have a, a, a real familiarity and a deep understanding of how people interact with social media platforms and mm-hmm. how those platforms can impact people. 
like mm-hmm. in large groups or at an individual level as well. Mm-hmm. But you arrive at Facebook and you're starting to see big differences with this yeah. platform versus all the others. So I'll give you I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, a huge fraction of all my coworkers at Facebook um, uh, had only ever worked at Facebook. You know, um, the vast majority of engineers are straight from college, maybe less than five years out. Um, even amongst mid-level managers, many of them had joined Facebook directly from college and had just been there for the last 10 years. And so, I, uh, you know, one of the things that I found really shocking compared to a place like Google was there, there wasn't... Um, uh, there wasn't any outside influence to say things like this story we're telling ourselves internally. Like one, one of the things I would bring up often was how understaffed really critical functions would be. You know, there'd be a team with maybe two people, three people on it, where for that same size problem at Google, there would always be 10 people. You know, even at Pinterest, which really struggled to hire, there would be eight people. Um, and, and people at Facebook would just sit there and be like, oh, every company in Silicon Valley struggles this way. And, and I, I'd want to look at them and be like, you know, this should be a, a fun, pl- a fun, attractive place to work. You know, it's a fun problem space. You, Facebook pays better than basically any of the other big tech companies. Like Facebook shouldn't be struggling to hire people. Like, like, do you take a moment and be like, oh, like, why do you think that is? Um, and so it was, it was, it was super intriguing for me from um, like an organizational health lens. Like, how do you get people who get caught in these these patterns of thoughts that that kind of teach them to be helpless? Hmm. You, um, by the way, I just feel like talking to you, uh, an interview uh, to have justice done to the story should be like four hours. And I feel like we're, <laughs> we're going to miss a lot. But I, but I also feel like the average yeah. person that listens to this or that hears your mm-hmm. message, they probably see evidence of what mm. you're talking about all around them on their own platforms. Mm. Like I know that you're speaking to a lot of people, you know, you're, you're mm. obviously on, on the big international TV platforms. A lot of people are reading your books. You're, you're doing lectures in person. Do you, is it a regular occurrence for someone to come up to you mm. and share a personal story of how mm. they have seen one of their friends or family members go astray or how they've come back from it or this mm. awakening that they've had? You know, I, I, I think the, the group that has touched me the most is um, and I've, I've worked with a number of parents whose children have been really um, meaningfully harmed. So this, can, this is a huge continuum. This is like kids who have struggled with an eating disorder um, uh, all the way up to children who have unfortunately died. Um, and it is it's it's I, I think we're living in a really interesting moment because for all societal issues, there is some level of harm that we're willing to accept, both generalized harm to society and and specifically harm to kids. You know, like if we, in the United States, for example, I don't I don't know how it works in Canada. You know, we put eight year olds in car seats. You know, when you actually look at the numbers of like, you know, how many kids are saved by keeping kids in car seats till they're eight instead of say six, and you remember. Keeping an eight-year-old in a car seat means, imagine how many fights those parents have to have around the kid, like, sitting in a car seat, right? Like, imagine the cost for all those car seats. It saves, like, 60 kids a year, right? Um, we're not willing to tolerate any harm to kids, really, when it comes to to cars. Way, way, way more than 60 kids are, are literally dying from, from uh, negligence happening with social media every year. And it's what I, I think the thing that has been so interesting about hearing these really deeply personal stories from from parents is I think we're and I, I think things like the Surgeon General's advisory just a couple of weeks ago 
all these things are symbolic of we are approaching a line where we're not willing to tolerate that harm anymore. Um, for, for listeners out there, uh, there have been less than 15 Surgeon General advisories in like the last 60 years. And the Surgeon General came out in the United States and said, you know, we have a teen mental health crisis that is being driven by social media. Yeah, this and is so uh, I think, on May 23rd. Yeah, social media harming yeah. youth mental health, warns the U.S. Surgeon General. Um, and so I think it's one of these things where those stories, you know, the stories of, of, of parents, stories of other family members, teachers, like teachers are really seeing the struggle. School districts, like there's literally school districts suing uh, Meta and, and TikTok today. Um, you know, those stories change the world. And so I've been incredibly grateful to get to hear them. And uh, I think they're going to be a force for change. Uh, the Surgeon General, let me say, Vivek Murthy, I, I want to just <clears throat> read a couple mm. of the points and then maybe we can get into it. Because, you know, people will sit here and say, well, social media is harmful or has the potential to be harmful. And it's kind of this big blanket statement. But I'd, I'd love mm. to get into maybe some specific observations. Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they, they talk about the Surgeon General does how social media uh, use of the platforms may cause and perpetuate body image issues affecting eating mm. behaviors like you talked about, Francis, sleep quality. Uh, leading to social comparison, low self-esteem, mm. especially among adolescent girls. Um, they say mm. adolescents who spend more than three hours per day on social media face double the risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes like symptoms of depression and anxiety. Uh, what do you think it is in and, particular? Go ahead. And, and, and in that same advisory, they say the average, the average child in the United States uses three and a half hours of social media a day. So we know right, it's so, bad. Yeah, I know it's amazing. Um, so I, I'll give you a really concrete example of harm and how it ties into the business model because that's that's really like the the core part of my work today is around this question of what incentives are we placing upon these platforms and what are the consequences of those incentives or if you change those incentives, what would you expect to happen? Um, so you mentioned their sleep quality. So I think sleep quality is one of these things where like if you if you feel like body image is a fuzzy issue. Hours of sleep is a really concrete issue, right? We know with kids, if you don't get seven to eight hours of sleep, uh, like especially for teenagers, seven to, hour, seven to eight hours of sleep, nine hours of sleep a night, you literally change how kids' brains grow. Uh, they have much, much higher risks of a wide range of mental illnesses. So this isn't just depression and anxiety. It's also higher risk for bipolar, schizophrenia. It increases substance use, uppers because they're tired, downers because they're depressed, increases ac death from accidents, both car accidents and just generalized accidents. And in, this is gonna be a no dumb moment, it hurts kids' academic performance, right? Imagine all those kids kind of hung over on Instagram sitting in math class because they're up till two, two the night before. You know, we live in a world right now where there are teams at Meta, at TikTok, 100 person teams, 200 person teams, who all they do are try to figure out how you can spend more time on their platforms. And that's because they're advertising supported businesses. You know, the more time you're on there, the more ads you click. Mm -hmm. um, they don't, we don't, right now, we ask these companies to report their profit and their loss numbers, their expenses, but we don't ask them to report their social costs. You know, that's, you know, how many sleep deprived kids are there? Mm. And, in a, and in a world where like Facebook had to publish or TikTok had to publish, this is how many kids are online at 10, 11, midnight, 1, 2, 3 a.m., you know, that's a world where now we can start putting pressure on those companies, you know, parents, advertisers, investors, you know, can start putting pressure on those companies to say, you need to help kids have real choices about signing off. 
Because I think most kids don't want to be, you know, right now, one in three kids in the United States is online till midnight or later most school nights, which means 10% are probably until two. You know, it's kind of BS too. Like, you know, we call the show Real Talk, uh, Francis, and I'm sitting here and you're, yeah. you're you're dropping these facts and I'm sitting here with this concerned look on my face and I'm like, mm-hmm. mm, that's terrible. That's really, t-. and then you're also <laughs> describing me. Like I'm, I'm a 46 year old oh, man. Yeah. So, I mean, we're maybe, maybe not <laughs> susceptible to some of the same challenges and maybe yeah. not, you know, as much cause for concern. I should be able to fend for myself. But the point mm. being... I have an unhealthy relationship with social media. Do more of us need to just stand up and say it? I mean, it feels like we're really, mm. like you said, I mean, you know, eight-year-olds yeah. in car seats versus this, we're really not taking it seriously. Are we Are we waiting for government to do it? Are we relying on whistleblowers mm-hmm. like you? So I think one of the big challenges right now is, you know, back in the 60s when we began this whole push around safety and automobiles, you know, we could vividly see the costs of, of the negligence of the car companies. You know, we could see the people who got decapitated by their glove compartments, people who got impaled on their steering columns because the companies didn't want to spend a few pennies more to make it collapsible. You know, um, uh, I think part of why we don't act on social media or why we don't have like a, a consumer bill of rights, right? That's, that's one of the projects I want to work on this year is like, let's actually articulate, you know, what are your digital consumer rights? It's things like you should have meaningful options for for regulating your own usage, not like, I don't know about you, on on YouTube, you can have a little thing pop up that says like, hey, it's your bedtime. Ah. And I'm like you, I I just hit dismiss, Uh right? Like, let's be honest with each other. Um, But but you could imagine a world where, you know, um, we've known for 20 years that if you make software a little bit slower, like we're talking like imperceptibly slower, like five milliseconds, 10 milliseconds, like the length of an eye blink, you make it a little bit slower, people use it less. Hmm. And you can imagine a world where instead of having a thing pop up that says, hey, it's 11 o'clock, do you want to go to bed? And you know, you and I hit snooze because we have YouTube habits or whatever. I have a YouTube habit, I'm willing to admit it. Um, I imagine a world where at noon, when you still had willpower, uh, it said, hey, when do you want to go to bed tonight? You know, maybe maybe you're a ten. You know, maybe you're a sixteen year old and and you're you're hungover in math class, right? You know, you've been up till two a.m., three a.m. the night before, and you're like, I want to go to bed at eleven. My mom wants me to go to ten, but I want to go to bed at eleven. And for two or three hours before that bedtime, you can imagine Instagram getting a little bit slower and a little bit slower. You know, it's like it's almost like you have to push harder to make the the, the stream go. You know, around your bedtime, you get tired. You just want to go to bed. And the crazy thing about that feature is if you were stealing content from Instagram, you know, you're, you're downloading content, you're making copies, that feature is live today. You know, they don't take away your account because you'll just get a new one. They slow your account down. So if Instagram actually cared about how many kids are on until 2 a.m. and like wanted to give them real choices about controlling their usage, I mean, they could launch that feature two weeks from now. Francis, we got in our YouTube live chat right now, uh, one of our Ooh. audience members, Doobie Is, says, uh, isn't the, yeah, I know that's a great handle, says, uh, isn't yeah. this the same moral panic as as with Ooh. comic books and that's Dungeons delightful. and Dragons and yeah. rock music and rap music? R- and don't AI. forget about rap. Yeah. Right? right? Yeah. So th- th- this yeah. listener says, every change generates sure. pearl clutching. Yeah. What's different about this one? So I think I think what's really meaningfully different about this one versus others is like the thing with rap music is, you know, if you listen to a rap song, you know, it it the, the rap album doesn't hand you another rap album if you, after you finish listening to it. 
And it doesn't hand you like another rap album that's more extreme than the previous rap album. And, and the, the, the real challenge with these systems is the algorithms are blind to the meaning or the significance of the content. So we've known since 2018 that, that Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg himself wrote a white paper, probably one of his employees, let's be honest here. He wrote a white paper and published it that said, Hey, we know the problem with directing content to people based on can it get clicks? You know, can I get comments? Can I get likes? Can, you know, whatever reshares is that people are drawn to click on more extreme content. Even though when we ask them afterwards, did you enjoy it? They say no. Um, and so you end up in this problem where I'll, I'll give you a, a really concrete example. Uh, a journalist was interviewing me and he said, Francis, I just had a baby, you know, healthy, happy, ba healthy, happy baby boy, cute baby. That baby has an Instagram account because, you know, modern dad, that that account has like maybe five or six friends. And all of those accounts are happy, healthy babies. You know, there's, there's, there are only happy, healthy baby pictures. Think, the only thing he's ever clicked on are healthy, happy babies. And yet 10% of his feed was suffering children. You know, it's kids with, uh, who have been horrible, horrible, mangled accidents. You know, kids dying of cancer in the hospital, tubes coming out of them, like visible, painful deformities. He's like, Francis, how did we get from healthy, happy babies to suffering children? And, and, and probably what, what happened is the algorithm doesn't know that showing suffering children to a new father is like kind of you know, psychologically abusive. All it knows is that that if you like babies, you can't you'll, you're, you're going to you can't stop. You're, you're, you're not going to scroll past it. Mm. You know, it, the high, most high probably thing that you're going to click on is that. And, and the thing about that dad is he's old enough and self-aware enough to notice something weird is happening. Facebook has run experiments where they take brand new accounts, you know, no, no interests, no friends, and they search for things like healthy recipes, healthy eating. And, and just by clicking on the content and coming back each day, you know, following the hashtags that Facebook suggests, you get pushed towards eating disorder content and self-harm content within a couple of weeks. And so I think that's the key difference between previous moral panics is previous moral panics were basically saying kids have bad taste. You know, kids are interested in these things that we find unpleasant. You know, the issue here is algorithms pushing kids towards content they did not ask for, where we, we have research that if kids look at, say, a lot of self-harm content, they're more likely to actually harm themselves. If you're just uh, joining us uh, live streaming audio on the Mixler app presented by California Closets, we're talking to Francis mm -hmm. Hagen, a Harvard MBA um, author of The Power of One, uh, founder of the nonprofit Beyond the Screen. Uh, so, Francis, I mean, is this solved? I mean, a lot, a lot of people are going to say, well, what, are we mm -hmm. going to interfere with the free market? Do we tell people that, you know, they can't eat at McDonald's if they have a certain yeah. BMI? What about yeah. free speech? All this kind of stuff. I mean, you don't actually, in past interviews I've read with you, you don't necessarily treat Mark Zuckerberg like King Evil. I mean, in a way, you, you kind of describe him as someone that's almost in prison. You've compared him to Britney Spears. Um, when you look at mm -hmm. people that, that wield great influence now, on, I mean, Elon Musk mm. is a classic example as well. I mean, are, are, we, are we headed toward a, a legislative showdown? I mean, are laws mm. the answer to this? Can we trust our lawmakers to keep yeah. up with tech? Like, where do we go from here? Oh my goodness. There's so many questions there. Like, no like you said, we, we, we could do this for four or five hours. Like I'm totally down. Um, but no, uh, the, the, um, let's actually, let's tease out some different threads in there. So like 
you know, I don't think Elon Musk is in the same predicament as Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like part of what's different about Elon and Mark is, is Elon, uh, you know, he has accountability, he has investors that that he owes a lot of money to, like, if he can't deliver on some of these promises, like there are going to be serious consequences. Mark, on the other hand, owns like 55% of all the votes that control Facebook. Like the chairman and the CEO are the same person, Mark Zuckerberg. He is his own boss. Um, uh, a lot of the mechanisms that we have for holding corporations accountable, and I know we feel like corporations are these giant monolithic things that we have no influence over. Most co corporations have shareholders. They have um, pension funds that invest in them, endowments who come in and put pressure on them. None of that works for Facebook. So the second question there is, is uh, you know, can Congress keep up with these things? You know, there is precedent elsewhere in the world. And I talk about this in the book. You know, I think the the the, the first step forward, like I, I'm, I am um, very cautious about what I think we should do next, right? Like we, we could, it's true, do Chinese-like interventions, like what Montana did. Montana came out and said, let's ban TikTok. We could, we could hypothetically do those Chinese-style Chinese, Chinese style things. Or, or Utah came out and said, kids should have no youth privacy. You know, you have to have a parental account that monitors you and like they should be able to see everything you see. You know, we can do those kinds of laws, but I don't think, I don't think they're appropriate right now. Like the level that we need is, is to just be able to even ask questions because right now there are hundreds of people in the world who really understand how these systems work. You know, you, every person who has kind of the skill sets that I have, they were trained up inside these companies, right? That you can't take a single college class where you learn about what choices go into making a social network or what are the consequences of those choices. And I don't believe we should have uh, conversations about regulating any industry if only 400 people in the world can comment on it in a meaningful way, right? Like, I don't think that's democratic. And so the thing that I'm very excited about is last year, Europe passed a law called the Digital Services Act, and it gave the public, at least in Europe, you know, we don't have this in the United States, it gave at least the public in Europe the right to know what risks platforms know about themselves. So like Facebook would be required to publish their research saying, hey, we know this hurts kids. We know this has X, Y, Z problems. But second, this is even more important. We have never had the right, no one in the world has ever had the right to ask Facebook questions and demand answers which sounds so basic, you know, the idea that like, if I ask you how many moderators speak French, speak German, you know, you'd expect if you're the government, you should be able to get basic answers like that. Facebook has actively not cooperated with any government in the world for asking even basic questions. And so my hope is that this is like when we started being able to crash test cars. You know, we don't have to trust a car company to say our seatbelts are good, we literally put crash test dummies into cars and we crash them. Right. Um, being able to ask questions, look at the data, um, get real answers, lets us grade Facebook's homework for the first time. And that means we can start doing things like boycotts. We can start doing things like divestment campaigns. We can start having protests. None of these things have been possible before. And so I think all of this, uh, there's a lot of opportunity in the next couple of years. Uh, a, a lot of people have lauded you as a hero. I mean, you're sort of no. Maybe it annoys you. I don't know. Does it to be known as the Facebook whistleblower? Does that you're, you're a lot more than that? Uh, you know, you, 
the I had I had a, a a very important moment for me uh, last month actually on um, I think it was it wasn't on Alberta radio I think it was out of Edmonton but I'm not sure mm. um, I did I called into a radio station in Canada and they never referred to me as the Facebook whistleblower I was just a tech accountability and transparency advocate and I was like oh my god like one day. I might be known as something more than just the whistleblower. Well, I mean, um, yeah. that that was like one thing that you did um, <laughs> that that kickstarted an international yeah. conversation about arguably yeah. one of the most important issues facing the next generation, facing us now. I mean, I, I think it's it's yeah. remarkable what you've done. Can I ask? And this might be an obvious question, and maybe it's an oh, inappropriate okay. one. But did you? Did you pay a, a professional price or was there? Oh, interesting. Well, great question. Great question. Releasing these um, documents. So, so, so one of the things that I think has been, um, you know, I, I, I'm very appreciative of it is like, you know, I'm from the Midwest. I, I really believe in, um, I don't, I don't like overwrought emotion. I don't like, I like practical things. Um, I've, I've always tried to be as fair as possible to Facebook. Like, I think when we demonize others, we lose the chance to learn from them. And, and I, and, you know, Facebook is full of kind, conscientious people who, who were working under a system of incentives that made it very difficult to do the right thing or made it impossible to do the right thing because of how things were set up. Um, and I, 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 I have been told by, um, I, I'm not going to name companies, but they're, they're, very major uh, brand companies who I've had, you know, senior leaders at them say, Hey, we, we noticed how you approach this. We really appreciate how, how balanced you've been. Um, and so I, I think if I wanted to go and um, just get a job as a data scientist again, I think I could. Um, I've gotten job offers from a number of smaller social media companies, like people who are trying to found new ways of doing things. But I think even if I wanted to just straight up, just be a data scientist again, um, I think I almost certainly could do that. And so my hope is one day we will get this all tied tied up because like I don't I don't have to work on it forever. I just need to get it to a point where we can bring more people to the table because without transparency, without having access to information, we can't train up the next generation to to be the people asking the kinds of questions I am right now. Um, you know, my hope is one day we'll get that kind of, you know, all all in place. And then I can go back to coding by the ocean, which is, you know, what I would rather be doing. There you go. And, <laughs> and, and, and polishing all of your book awards. Um, oh. You know, that, that wouldn't be a bad thing either. We, we've got fascinating conversations yeah. going on in our live chat. I've got, yeah. I've got somebody making a point oh, about how, how they believe that porn is is impacting <laughs> teen sexual health. Um, mm. I saw an interview that you did. I think it was with Wired yeah. where, you, where you argued that virtual mm -hmm. reality is, is not something that we should oh, make, yeah. make fun of or, or take lightly. Um, I mentioned yeah. that you're the founder of the nonprofit Beyond the Screen um, and you've yeah. also taken up this really neat role, uh, McGill University, uh, here mm -hmm. in Canada, obviously, at their Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy as a senior fellow mm -hmm. in residence. Um, why, by the way, why, why go with a Canadian university oh. as opposed to an American one? I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Um, so one, um, one of my favorite academics in the world um, is, is Taylor Owen, who uh, leads, leads the program at McGill. And for context, you know, there's different ways you can approach regulation of of online platforms. You know, you could have a world where you go in and you prohibit a bunch of things. You know, you could ban all of TikTok. You could ban specific features or ways of approaching these things. Um, or you can come in and say, hey, you know, the way we got here, kind of the core problem that underlies all these other problems is that we don't we don't have information um, and you can go at it that way. 
And and Taylor has been one of the the foremost leaders in the world, I think, in in in, in promoting that kind of approach to regulation of saying we need access to information so that we can have a democratic conversation. And and part of why I chose to um, to to come to McGill is. You know, I have been trying really, really hard for the last two years to frame these as bipartisan issues. Like these are these are not, you know, uh, we have strategies that don't involve picking and choosing what ideas are good and bad. And Facebook, instead of using those strategies, because they do cost slivers of profit, you know, 0.1, 0 0.2% of profit for a company with 35% profit margins, um, you know, I... Uh, I've tried to frame it as this should be bipartisan. We sh should be having conversations around how these platforms exist in a democracy. If I had chosen basically any university in the United States, um, it would be seen as taking a side, right? We have, you know, right-wing universities, we have left-wing universities. Um, we, we've really, we are so polarized in the United States that it's, 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 um, it's very hard to find a neutral place to work from. Huh. And I, I, th I think there's a really big opportunity working through Canada because Canada is kind of seen as an honest broker, right? You know, Canadians are not known for, you know, rushing to regulation, um, but at the same time, they're also known for responsibility. And um, uh, Taylor and I, the project that Taylor and I are working on this year is how do we have democratic conversations around tech accountability? Like we need to have lots and lots of different kinds of people getting a seat at the table and hashing through these things because that's how we actually solve things in a democratic way. Hmm. Yeah, we got so much going on. And I mean, obviously, I know you're not suggesting this, but Canada has its own enormous uh, issues mm -hmm. with misinformation online. And uh, we mm -hmm. talk about political bad actors. There's that uh, mm. federal bill C-11, which is in play. And I know people mm. are paying attention to what that will mean for, for online content and for content providers mm -hmm. like us. I mean, there's a million things to talk about. Um, we're so grateful for your time and your expertise, uh, Francis. Uh, as, as humble as you are, you're a bit of a big deal in this space. And we sure appreciate you giving us a half hour to, to dig into this. My pleasure. Happy um, to be with, here. With, with plenty Anytime. more to talk about. Um, people can, can read, obviously, the Facebook files. I mean, this was the Wall Street Journal investigation back in 2021 that started this whole thing, uh, prompted by, by you and, and your cooperation with them. They can check out FrancisHogan.com. Uh, for more on e even maybe bringing you in to speak at their corporate event. And of course, they can <laughs> find The Power of One uh, anywhere you buy great books. Of course, that's author Francis Hagen. Thank you so much for mm. this. Happy to be here. Thank you. All Every the best. Day. Yeah, you got it. Fascinating conversation. I want to thank our uh, live chat audience members as well that are sharing i mean i couldn't going keep off up with right it. Now. they are going off some people yeah. are talking about how you know they, they took two weeks away from social media around the, yeah. the recent provincial election in alberta well we just had this week off and you know what i tried to do that i tried to kind of get off of social media and i think mm -hmm. one thing francis was saying is about how we're kind of drawn to negative content and all my netflix subscribers right now you can probably go look um there is a brand new season of uh, black mirror out right now and the final episode is about a not too distant future where yeah. we have content created literally shows about our own lives and at the end, well, I don't want to give too much away, but they basically say, you know, we were going to go with positive shows that people watch about their own lives, but nobody liked it. Nobody they liked wanted it. to see all the negative content. The carnage. It, it's called Joan is Awful. I, I, I encourage everyone to go watch it, but it's true. We're drawn to negative content. We're drawn to drama. We're drawn to conflict. 
way more than the positive things. Yeah, I saw uh, some people as well saying, I think it was Mark here in the chat said that, that he and, a, and another parent had, had kind of cooked up their own experiment and, and seeing if they could manipulate or game or, or at least gain a better understanding of the algorithm and how it puts that content in front of you. That is no small thing, what Francis is talking about. People whose online searches or the accounts that they follow on Instagram are yeah. around things like fitness, mm -hmm. healthy eating, you know, uh, you know, sort of like healthy approaches to life and lifestyle management, wellness. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you're being fed with stuff around eating disorders. And, and, yeah. and for a lot of people, like she said, this is a life and death type situation. Um, fascinating stuff. Let us know what you thought about that interview. And, and please do share interviews like this with people in your lives who you know would benefit from hearing from someone like Frances Hagen. I mean, like, she, you know, anyway, I, I, I know we've, 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 we've sent a lot of sort of uh, smoke her way in a good way. But, you know, this is someone who for 15 years in Silicon Valley was at the biggest companies right google facebook yelp pinterest like she has a very uh in-depth understanding of, of of not just how they operate but about some of those pitfalls and and these are the types of conversations we want to make sure that we have on the show i wonder how charles adler's going to feel about this he's been waiting he's been hanging out in the bullpen listening to this uh adler wields huge influence on his twitter account and uh i don't even know if he's on facebook i don't think he is we'll ask him in just a second <laughs> these conversations happen because of teams like apex automation and they want us to let you know right now that they are hiring so if you're a professional engineer anywhere in canada or even if this show has found you somewhere else internationally apex is bringing talented engineers in from all around the world if you're an electrical engineer maybe you're an expert in instrumentation computer science process engineering mechanical engineering even an instrument tech they're hiring right now as their team continues to grow at an unbelievable pace if the future around autonomous vehicles and machinery has caught your attention, if you love the idea of working in robotics, I mean, these are just some of the opportunities that lie in wait. When you sign up to join the team at Apex Automation, you can find more information about getting that resume in and getting that conversation started at apexautomation.ca. Our friends at Complete Care Restoration, it's a busy time of year for them. And gosh, I mean, you know, th this is a family-owned company and, and about as salt as the earth as they get. I was talking to Kelly, one of their founders, the other day. He says, you know what, we, we, we hope that nobody ever has to call us. But if your family has been impacted, if, you, if your living space or maybe where you earn your living, impacted by wildfires, floods, maybe you've just discovered mold or asbestos as part of what was supposed to be a chilled out renovation it's all of a sudden getting a little bit more serious you're going to want to trust that project to the team at complete care restoration they've been doing this for more than 10 years and your insurance policy the small print probably gives you the choice to well dictate who you want to do that work so go with the team that is more professional than i think johnny any other team we've ever seen in action the way oh, that yeah. they built this studio out for us really remarkable complete care restoration online plus over the phone at 780-454-0776 it's a perfect week for dairy queen why because it's always a perfect week for dairy queen and of course they've got their special summer menu in effect right now with those dq blizzard treats at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park that includes the cotton candy blizzard treat one of their all-time classics and of course the brand new oreo brookie blizzard treat what's that all about well 
Let me tell you, it delivers the perfect summertime cravings matchup. Mix up the taste playlist with Oreo cookie pieces and Brookie pieces. That's brownie and cookie baked together in case you didn't know. Well, the end result is blizzard treat perfection at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And don't forget, on the 10th tee box on Thursday at the yeah. Ranch, we got Dilly Bar Shooters. Oh, my God. Courtesy of our friends <laughs> of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Danger. Oh, danger, danger, everybody. <laughs> Were you one of those that had a chance over the weekend to experience the uh, medieval feast at our Friesen Brothers locations? This was the ones with the fresh market stores. It was kind of their Father's Day promotion. Looked like a ton of fun. If you want to see some photos, shout out to Real Talker Lori, who tweeted her photos straight from the buffet line, and she tagged us, Real Talk, in that, so we're happy to share it. Friesen Brothers is all about great food and wonderful family time together. It's the foundation they poured more than 65 years ago, and their 16 locations in this province still family-owned. It's Pork Month through the month of June at Friesen Brothers. Just in time for barbecue season, you can check it out online at Friesen.com. That's F-R-E-S-O-N.com. Well, it's a favorite tradition here on the show every Monday, or at least the first show of every week. We check in with Emmy Award-winning talk legend, uh, Charles Adler. And, uh, well, it's been a big month for Chuck as well, launching a podcast, guesting on other podcasts. But let me ask you this. On the heels of our chat with Francis Hagen, how would you characterize, if we're going to get real and keep it honest, how would you characterize or assess your relationship with social media? I have a love-hate relationship with a lot of um, entities, including a lot of people, uh, and I, <laughs> including the broadcast industry, yeah. uh, probably the podcast industry. And so uh, why should social media be any different? It is not a 100% wholesome relationship. If I was only looking for 100% wholesome relationships, I would have to check right out of life because I'm not wired that way. And one of the reasons I'm not wired that way is because I can spell nuance, but I don't do nuance. It means nothing to me. I tend to have opinions, hopefully tethered to facts, and the opinions that I offer in the interest of making sure as many people as possible get into the opinion are sometimes sharp. And some people would sometimes say those sharp opinions are negative and they uh, create a, uh, a negative reaction. Yes, they create an intense positive reaction, but they also create a, an intense negative reaction. You were referring earlier to Facebook and, and Twitter. I do Twitter. I don't do uh, Facebook. I just find uh, when I do Facebook, uh, it's an overwhelming negative reaction that actually prevents other people from, from getting involved. And so um, I, I tend to be a sort of a, a magnet uh, for some of the worst. And even on, on Twitter, uh, you know, recently uh, in doing what I, I do, uh, which is um, try as, as much as possible uh, to champion human rights. And yes, trans rights are part of human rights, just as our women's rights, labor rights, and all of the other rights. I'm a, I'm a rights person, okay? I think all of us have to be treated as equals. It's what makes the promised land called Canada special for me. I understand that not everyone talks the not everyone walks the talk. I, I, I get that, but I am a bit of an idealist, and I would want everyone uh, to have the same amount of respect, equality, justice before the law. And the latest people who are getting picked on are trans people, so naturally 
I'm championing their rights. In doing that, my Twitter is filling up, with, and some of this is just the algos, as Francis was talking about, and the troll farmers, of course, take you know t- take charge, and you get a lot of stuff that isn't even from real people. But nevertheless, uh, the words uh, pedophile and uh, groomer, uh, and even uh, the, the latest uh, Holocaust opportunist, you know, stuff like this is being inserted into many of the replies. If I were doing Facebook, uh, it would be even worse. And some people say, well, why do you, why do, you do stuff that is going to attract that kind? Because of- I don't care. Because that's not what that's just a, a price that uh, we have to pay. And I understand that a lot of people cannot get involved in publicly um, making any kinds of statements on things that really matter because uh, they really worry about the blowback, even if it's coming uh, from a bunch of troll farmers. It doesn't matter. Uh, I think it's a price worth paying to, to get the message out. The message is important. If I wanted to absolutely avoid those kinds of ridiculous labels, it'd be a different story. My conscience is clear. And the other thing is when people throw those labels out, promiscuously, casually, frequently, those labels C-step any meaning. That aspect of it bothers me. We have real groomers out there. We have real pedophiles out there. But if you're going to call everyone who champions human rights a pedophile or a groomer, you end up, unfortunately, unfortunately, giving more oxygen and more power to the real peds and the real groomers. Mm, that's well said. I, you know, I, 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 I've oftentimes wondered when, when you and I will interact, or I mean, we, we do our weekly thing here and we'll share the clips of what you have to say. And, and the feedback is often like, you know, uh, one third, we love Adler, listen to Adler for years, love when he's on the show. And then two thirds, just nastiness. And, and yeah. I, I just like, I've often wondered you, um, you know, for many, many decades, you know, sort of, uh, you know, like fielded calls. I mean, nobody can really know unless you unless you walked a mile in those shoes what it's like to sit in a radio studio and just blindly take open line calls. And some of the stuff that people say you were never shy, always assertive, always opinionated and always came across as very. And can I say and this is not a, this is a compliment as very self-assured and very confident and I've, I've often thought, like, if, if someone like you is getting piled on on social media, the way that you navigate that, there's probably a lot of people watching. The people that, that wouldn't be used to the, the spotlight with that many lumens, but that still have, that still face their own fire, that still have their own critics, and that are probably not quite sure how to handle that, how to manage that type of thing. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, you talk about the self-assurance, those kinds of criticisms uh, and, and and the mountain of criticisms that I get, and I could get far more if I went on Facebook and, and some of the others. But, uh, you know, all that does is reinforce the self-assurance. They're coming after me for a reason. You know, and, and, and I mean, uh, if, if I wasn't making any impact, they wouldn't be coming after me. I mean, you know, right now we've got a, a by-election happening t- today. Uh, in a number of writings, uh, yeah. two of which are right here in Manitoba, one of which is in uh, southern Manitoba in so-called farm country, but this is no different than than Calgary. You know, we'll call a riding an urban, a rural riding, even if it's twenty minutes out of town. Oh, it's a, it's a rural riding, you know, and the people there are wired completely differently. And this is something that you know political parties, unfortunately, uh, really make a, a mockery of. Uh, I've, I've told you a thousand times. I don't believe that everybody who lives in a town is different than everyone who lives in the city. You know, we all love kids. 
We all love our parents. Yesterday was Father's Day. We love we love our dads, and we love uh, Christmas. And uh, you know, I know that's a politically incorrect thing to say because oh, well, not everyone celebrates Christmas. We all love the holidays. Okay, if that makes a difference to you, the point is that most of most of what we care about, we're the same no matter where we live. Politicians and other media manipulators take advantage and they 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 separate. So, so you've got a candidate, a Conservative Party candidate, who's fighting Maxime. Bernier of the, uh, the the People's Party, who used to be a conservative. So he, how, how is he fighting Maxime Bernier? He's pointing out that Maxime Bernier at one time, when he was much more of a libertarian, was supported by the LGBT Tories. Those are Tories. Those are conservatives. Yes, they happen to be gay. Is that is that a problem? Well, this conservative candidate is turning that into a problem, saying, i got to remind you, Maxime Bernier wasn't always the way he is now. You know, at one time, he supported the LGBT community as if that is a problem. So that's not something a conservative candidate would be doing running in Edmonton or even Calgary or Toronto or some other cities. But no, he's in the he's in the country. He's like at least 45 minutes out of Winnipeg. So it's OK to, to do this caveman routine. And he's not just doing it on the issue of LGBT. He's also more pro-life than anybody would be. And of course, once again, going back to the LGBT thing, uh, he's talking about what was the uh, what was that um, business that we were all talking about for a couple of years? Uh, it was primarily some religious organizations that thought they could talk people out of being gay. What oh, was the, what was the term oh that was used? Uh, oh geez, are we talking like conversion therapy? Kind yeah, of yeah, idea? conversion therapy. Uh, yeah. So this guy, this conservative, is saying, you know what? I'm so conservative. I'm much more conservative than Maxime Bernier. If I had a vote on on conversion therapy. You know, I would vote against it. And so, yeah, I talk about these things. I talk about these things on Twitter. And I say, because this this stuff, you know, becomes room service for the other party, in this case, the Liberal Party. And this is a conservative candidate, and he's got the blessing of the conservative headquarters with him. So Pierre Polyev can't, you know, create distance. He can pretend to create distance, but it's the same party, right? And he's got Pierre Polyev all over his his literature. So I'm simply saying on, on Twitter, and I guess I'll, I'll say it here now, if the Conservative Party really wants to believe that Canadians want to go back to the Stone Age, that's fine. That's that's their choice, and it's the choice of Canadians to do that. But, of course, when I say that, when I say Stone Age, you, know, you get a mountain of people coming on, you know, referring to, to, to the Holocaust, you know, Holocaust deniers. They think that's a, a way of, of, of getting to me. Uh, then they once again they use the the the, the pedophile thing and the the groomer thing you know whatever whatever the latest slurs are and i don't sometimes know whether they're trying to quote get to me by by doing that or whether this is just their way the the cult's way of you know doing that secret handshake of uh, of speaking to each other i'm not really sure uh, what the motivation is all i know is that i wouldn't be getting a mountain of it if the people who create the mountain of dung didn't think that i was a problem for them yeah, it's interesting right? what's going on with this. And these these there's four by elections today: Winnipeg, Montreal, some you know, obviously a couple in Manitoba, and and um, you know, people are saying, well, well, this this could send a bit of a by elections are always kind of interesting, right? Because they're they're kind of out of the regular election cycle, and people like to read into them. If if a seat flips, people go, well, is that is that a you know sort of a, a microcosm of a bigger trend or a bigger picture? And then others kind of say, well, not really. And all the pundits today, I mean, there's a reason why we go to the polls. And so let's not wind up with egg on our face. But a lot of the pundits are saying they don't think that any of these seats are going to flip. They think it'll pretty much be status quo. The liberals will hang on to M M Montreal and Winnipeg. The conservatives will hang on to their so-called rural ridings, uh, like you said. But 
but interesting how you know this particular campaign, this particular candidate you're talking about in Manitoba, we're seeing similar developments in Alberta, right? We're seeing with with the influence of this Take Back Alberta group on the United Conservative Party. There are now MLAs elect that are being described as, and and I mean, if the shoe fits, described as Take Back Alberta MLAs. That's how yeah. people are referring to them. And I think that this could become and will become a bigger and bigger problem for the premier who's got to make sure that she can keep. And, and again, I hate to, and I know you're not doing this, turn this into urban versus rural because not everybody in urban centers is LGBT friendly, or if I could be cynical for a second, woke. And not everybody in rural writings is a Neanderthal. Far from Right. But this yeah. is a collision. Yeah, yeah, course. I laugh about this stuff because, you know, I've lived in Calgary several times. And when I lived in Calgary, I mean, my most loyal listeners happen to be in the country. There are probably a lot of reasons for that. I went to the country to rural Alberta all the time. Always felt at home. I, I, I never felt that if I was sitting at a, at a, at a restaurant in Black Diamond, you know, some with, with checker, with, you know, the checkered tablecloths. Um, and 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 some real cowboys, not uh, people playing the role of cowboys in the movies made in that area, but real cowboys. Like I, I, I never saw horns coming out of their stetsons. Mm-hmm. You know, I never had this. I never had this feeling that you know some parts of Alberta are friendlier to me than others based on some of my political opinions. But of course, whether it's social media or even shows like this, I think sometimes people get the impression, especially if they're watching outside of Alberta, that 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 in Alberta society is so polarized that. Fifty percent of the folks are afraid of the other fifty percent, and that's the ur- urban and the rural. I really, I, I, I know that some some days we we overdo this. It's just that you're you're a fifth or sixth generation Albertan, uh, as everyone knows. Alberta's got a very very special piece of my heart, and I've spent a lot of time there, and so I really resent this thing. And of course, take back Alberta is just going to reinforce it because nationally they're going to say, "Well, Alberta, Alberta, remember, you know, Alberta had a Jim Keekster problem, and now they've got a take back Alberta problem." I'm not saying it shouldn't be discussed. I'm simply saying that Alberta is not nearly as polarized as people. Think it is. You know, people in rural Alberta have modern appliances, and their kids go to universities. Uh, you know, uh, even even when we talk about farms, I, I laugh about you know people who don't know anything about farming, don't know anything about agriculture, don't realize that agriculture is a very sophisticated business, and the agribusiness people who are running it are very sophisticated, educated people. I don't want to rain on 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 heritage and history of you know the the traditional the the guy in the straw cap who doesn't have much of an education and blah 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 blah. They were hardworking people. They built Alberta. They built Saskatchewan. They built this uh, province that is my adopted home province now in, in Manitoba. So I'm not t- I'm not taking shots at them. I'm simply saying that you've got to have more than a straw hat, okay, and a love of Johnny Cash to make a living in egg country. Johnny Cash, what a beauty. Hey, can I ask you about your Winnipeg Free Press column? I love this. this. I love this. Yeah. That's that's, that, that's a singer sewing machine. And uh, I uh, grew up at my father's knee, and he was, uh, you know, uh, just as I slave over a hot computer and a hot microphone, yeah. he slaved over that singer sewing machine for 80 hours a week. Yeah, he got up from it occasionally to serve the customers, but then he always got back to it. And uh, that singer sewing machine uh, was the heart of our uh, our operation, our business, and uh, 
everything I learned about love and uh, loyalty and family and tradition and common sense uh, came from the man behind that uh, that sewing machine. I can't love him enough, and I think I speak for a lot of people. I feel closer to him now, even though he's he's left me. Uh, he left a few years back. I don't even want to use the number because I, I I feel closer to him now, uh, and I'm, I'm I feel somewhat guilty about this. And I think everyone listening to me knows exactly what I'm talking about. But I feel closer to him now than when he was with us in so-called real life. He's as real to me now, even more real uh, than, than he was then. And there's nothing that I know of that I say on these podcasts or other platforms that I appear on, and uh, very soon we'll have our own uh, the podcast. There's nothing that I say where I'm not mindful of, of Mike Adler, the guy who taught me all about love and, and loyalty and family. And uh, yeah, a lot of politics as well. Nothing I say that would embarrass him. And, and if it does, then uh, Pa, um, forgive me. Yesterday was a very, very special day, uh, not just because it was Father's Day, but he would have been 100. Mm. Uh, this this would have been the, the Father's Day he celebrated uh, with, with his little boy uh, at 100. I think for some people who don't know, I'm not going to belabor the point, but my dad uh, wasn't didn't just father me. Uh, Barack Obama, and I used a Barack Obama quote uh, in, the, uh, in the paper, uh, you know, Barack Obama said that any anybody can be a father. Any man can be a father. They can do the the, the biology, um, but uh, you're not really a father unless you're raising that son or daughter. Uh, that's what makes you a father. It's the raising, not just the siring. Um, so here's the thing: um, there are many, many people today, and you can you can interview some of them. They're writing books and columns about how men don't get the respect they used to get, fathers don't get the respect that they used to. Get. And you 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 can make a case for that all day long. But all of us, and Ryan, I don't mean to speak for you, but I'm going to speak for you anyway. Sure. You, you, you and me are two of many people in Alberta and elsewhere who have to, if we're honest with each other, regardless of how we feel about um, the equality of the genders, we have to admit that having a strong father figure in our lives who happened to be our father makes a difference to how we see the world, how we see ourselves every single day. And if we're fortunate enough to have a dad like yours or mine, yes, we get a leg up. People want to talk about privilege. I sometimes resist that 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 concept of you know some of us are more privileged than others, even though obviously we are. I can't go, I can't go through life you know uh, counting the, the check marks on on my various privileges. Obviously, I've got some some privileges, but the number one privilege I have is being the son of Mike Adler. I'll never argue that that wasn't a great privilege. Mm. Yeah, I uh, uh, for people that subscribe to our weekly email, it's free. You can sign up just by scrolling to the bottom of the page at ryanjesperson.com. I shared a photo. Um, and Johnny, you can take the screen. Don't worry about it. Johnny's probably not taking the screen right now because he sees I'm in my email inbox, which Charles shows that I have 9,690 unread messages. Uh, so that's a little... <laughs> that's something I'll have to figure out this week. But there's a photo of my dad. That's Dr. Bruce um, holding... Our baby Noah Bear, uh, that was earlier this year, and I'll tell you, I was in the airport in Kelowna yesterday, 
my dad and mom are in Halifax right now. And so I was able to get them on the phone for five minutes and uh, in front of a whole bunch of people, though I'm sure none of them were watching me, the minute that I heard his voice and the minute that I started to articulate what he means to me, uh, I just started crying. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, it's, and I hope that that said it all to him um, because, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize that, you know, and let's say this. I, I, I like that we say this. I, I want to take the time to acknowledge that Father's Day is horribly painful for a lot of people. I, I saw just even evidence of that yesterday in my own orbit. You know, people that are important to me. Uh, you know, one person shared, uh, you know, my father didn't give me anything. Uh, you know, a quote from a show. Another talked about how her husband has lost his dad and has lost his son. And so Father's Day is especially painful for him. Uh, for some people, there was no father figure, or at least there was not maybe the actual biological father, but maybe somebody else stepped up in a similar role. I mean, I look at nonprofits, like ones that we support with our Pond Hockey Classic, you know, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Uncles and Aunts at Large. There are these, you know, groups that recognize the importance of having uh, a figure uh, in someone's life that can give them the tools, that can help them with the low moments and and understand how to better navigate the high moments and, and the better moments. And I mean, I even just think that can I read some of your words to you for, for the benefit, Chuck, of maybe people that didn't read your column in the Winnipeg Free Press? They can check it out, winnipegfreepress.com. But on the heels of what we just talked about with Francis Hagen uh, about self-confidence and, 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 and how people's uh, sense of self-worth can be crushed by digital factors, like by social media. I mean, you write about how your dad wrote the book on loyalty let me read how you write about your dad as a tailor, in particular, his female clients. You say, my child's eyes couldn't help but notice that you made many of them, the customers, feel more confident the moment they slipped on their clothes that fit better and looked better after you worked your magic with your Singer sewing machine. You never called a customer beautiful, but it was clear that you made many feel that way. There was only one woman you called beautiful, and that was mom. Despite all the hard times, you never forgot to remind her how she was the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, that is it, my man. You know, sometimes people ask me, uh, who are my favorite artists? And there are so many. And I throw in an artist that doesn't usually get into people's top 10 and sometimes not even their top 50. And that's Charlie Rich. Mm. And the reason, the reason I'm crazy about Charlie Rich is because as a DJ, I played over and over and over again, especially when I was doing the country DJ work under the name of uh, Billy Anderson. I couldn't call myself Billy Nelson. Couldn't call myself Willie Nelson. Called myself Billy Nelson. In any case, I played Charlie Rich all the time, but especially the most beautiful girl in the world. So he didn't say the most beautiful woman, but he said the most beautiful girl in the world. Every time I heard that tune, I thought about my mom. But most important, from my childhood perspective i thought about what my dad called my mom and i know how that made her feel and i know that still lights her up like a christmas tree even today and uh, i'm not here to give advice to to men on what what to say to their wives or their girlfriends or their daughters but it it sure didn't ever hurt my mother's self-esteem and my mother's most most powerful women uh, that I've ever met, that true is a, is a privilege to be raised by by Rose Adler. But the thing is, um, if 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 you're go if you're if you're gonna pay a compliment to a woman, you know, 
Make it your wife. Make it your girlfriend. Make it your daughter. Uh, it will stay with them for life. I don't care how self-assured they are. We all want everyone to be as self-assured as possible. Getting a compliment from your boyfriend, your husband, or your father is not a bad way to start the day. We love you, Chuck. We'll talk to you again in a week. I love you too, man. And I love I love Dr. Bruce. <laughs> there you go. Well, the feeling is mutual there. That's Charles Adler. You can, of course, catch him every Monday or the first episode of every week uh, right here on Real Talk. By the way, I saw that he hopped on Jan Arden's podcast the other day. Ooh. That's probably going to be one to add to your add to your to listen list this week. Um, this jumped out at me off the, the live chat uh, from Tony, who says yesterday was a tough day for me. She says, I lost my dad in 2008 unexpectedly. Um, and even as an adult in her 60s, um, I miss him so much. No kidding, Tony. And, and thanks for sharing that. And, uh, you know, whatever that day means to you, we hope that you did find something, you know, find something to focus on, a, a reminder, maybe a challenge to, to you know, I mean, whether it's in your own personal life or perhaps a relationship. Uh, maybe it's a relationship where offenses could be mended. Um, we hope that yesterday uh, provided an opportunity for some reflection for you, for those of you f- for whom it was a tough day. Our thoughts are with you. And, and for those of you for whom it was a very exciting day, I also saw some photos of friends celebrating their very first Father's Day. Uh, for some of them, it's still an in utero promise of a blessing to come. Uh, really, really wonderful stuff. We're going to focus on a silver lining in, in just a little bit, on a happy, on a good news story. Uh, this is a dad, as a matter of fact. He's a grandpa uh, that's got some new hardware. He's got some new bragging rights. That's presented by Kubi Renewable Energy. That's coming up in just a second. But first, I wanted to tell you about Athabasca University. For those of you real talkers that are convinced that this year, 2023, is going to be the year that you take a big step forward when it comes to self-betterment, when it comes to your career, take two seconds today to check out AthabascaU.ca. Why? Well, it's different than any other post-secondary in Canada. You know that more than 95% of AU grads say they're satisfied with the quality of their education. More than 95 of their grads would recommend AU to others. That's a big deal. And nearly 90%, 9 out of 10, are in a job related to their field of study. That is a huge deal. That is a very significant stat. And all the more reason why we can guarantee that AU is where you will find a perfect fit. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping. This is the time of year where, I mean, a lot of landscapers, it's hard to get them to call you back. It's it's really hard to grab some of their attention because number one, it's the busiest time of year. And, and number two, this is just big corporations, not Eden Landscaping. This is a family owned business. When you call them, when you send them an email, a real life human's going to call you back. And this is all part of their promise as a custom landscape builder that can bring your outdoor space to life. So whether you have a, an ambitious, modern plan in mind, whether you've been taking a look at some more natural beauty, maybe some of these landscape designs that are catching your eye, stonework, water features, whatever it is, you get full project management and their full attention. When you work with Eden Landscaping, you can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website or by visiting landscapeedmonton.ca. And a shout out to all of you decision makers out there, whether you're a small business owner, whether you're working as part of a big business, or perhaps you're employed by a municipality. 
in charge of things like garbage and recycling collection, waste management. I want you to check out localenvironmental.ca today. You can keep it local because with this company, they believe that communities deserve better. This is their promise to you. Better service, better prices, more support for local causes. There is more reason to visit local environmental services today than ever before because we know that people's costs of doing business are going up. Whether it's inflation or other factors that are prompting, people are paying very close attention to their business bottom line and local knows that. You'll understand what's different about doing business with local when you see them online at localenvironmental.ca. Every Monday, our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy, they're hiring, by the way, right now, looking for electricians and installers that want to work in BC, Northwest Territories, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Check them out online at kubienergy.ca. We take a look at a good news story that has filled our cup, that's made us smile, and I love this one. We call this Positive Reflections. You know, a a grandfather, now he's a young grandpa, he's 53, but a grandfather in uh, Britain has just become one of the world's top arm wrestlers. And here's the thing, he took up the sport three years ago. Three years ago, Mark Walden discovered professional arm wrestling uh, during the COVID shutdowns. And now, three years later, he has captured the gold medal at the European Championships representing Great Britain in the International Federation of Arm Wrestling. And now, when he first got started, by the way, he had, he had just survived COVID. And like we're talking like hospitalized, serious business. Didn't know if he was going to make it out of there. His first few bouts as a pro arm wrestler, they weren't great. But six months later, it became clear that he had a special talent. Now, this guy was a lifelong gym member, but he's telling reporters that he realized a strong physique was not enough to help him bring success. He thought he he started training the specific muscles you need for arm wrestling. He said they're tiny little, he said it's kind of silly working out because you're working these tiny little muscles you didn't even realize that you had. But once he got that figured out and, 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 and subscribed to this new training regimen, well, he, he's now basically unstoppable. He's got the medal. He's got the hardware to prove it. A European gold medalist. He says, COVID nearly cost me my life, but it made me want to live life to the fullest. He said his father's recent passing is what motivated him to win this bout, and he's dedicated his victory to his dad. He says, I know he would have been proud of me, my two grandkids are as well. His granddaughter, Ray, Grace, is calling him Johnny the Hulk. So there you go. European champion arm wrestler. I absolutely love it. A big shout out to Mark Walden. If you see a story in the news or something in your personal life that just makes you smile so big your face hurts, we want to hear about it. You can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Don't forget, Positive Reflections is presented by Kubi Renewable Energy. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking to a couple of experts in their fields. Number one, journalist Robin Doolittle with the Globe and Mail. She's going to tell us why they're trying to fix Canada's broken freedom of information regime. She says Alberta is the most secretive of all the provinces. Plus, John Valen is the author of Fireweather. We're going to be talking about allegations and some misinformation about arson. We're going to talk about greenhouse gas emissions, and we're going to talk about what the future of fires looks like in Canada. Thanks for making this episode of Real Talk part of your Monday. We sure do appreciate it. Smash that like button if you enjoyed it, and be sure to tell a friend. We'll talk to you again soon.
Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepherd, Website Design Mike Johnston, Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.